Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 355 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16, The Launch. Originally slated for launch on March 17, 1972, Apollo 16 was now to fly on April 16th as the culmination of a long preparation. The crew assignments were formally announced over a year ago on March 3, 1971, and the elements of the spacecraft began to arrive at Kennedy Space Center in July of 1971. Apollo 16's preparation was not without incident. In mid-November, the three main chutes had to be replaced after the failure of a connector link on Apollo 15, with only two of the three parachutes operative at splashdown. On December 13, 1971, the combined stack of the Apollo spacecraft and Saturn V were moved from the Vehicle Assembly Building to the launch pad number 39A. However, a mistake during subsequent testing resulted in the bursting of one of the Teflon bladders that contained the hypergolic fuel in the command module's reaction control system. Since the test had used helium gas rather than actual fuel, there was only limited damage. However, The replacement of the RCS tank was required, which in turn needed disturbance of the command module heat shield. A further problem was the need to change one of the explosive cords that separate the lunar module from the command and service module prior to returning to Earth. A failure in a similar device during testing for Skylab raised concerns over the cord used for Apollo 16, and it was decided to replace it. These two problems led to the decision to return the stack to the Vehicle Assembly Building for the first time in the Apollo program. A third problem was a delay in modifying the crew's spacesuits after Charles Dukes suffered failure of a clamp during training. As a result of all three problems, the launch date was delayed from March 17th to April 16th, the next launch window for the mission. 
The timing of an Apollo launch to the moon falls within certain windows or periods of time, which are influenced by both daily and monthly factors. The daily restriction to the window is due to the rotation of the Earth bringing the launch site to the correct relationship with the moon's position in its orbit to allow enough of a parking orbit around the Earth before the boost to the moon. The monthly factor is the lighting requirements at the landing site. The landing has to take place in the early lunar morning so that the sun is behind the astronauts as they approach from their east to west orbit. A low sun angle produces shadows on the lunar terrain, which helps the crew to recognize landmarks as well as aiding speed and distance perception. With a lunar day lasting 29.5 Earth days, the correct conditions for landing only occur once a month. The official mission countdown began on Monday, April 10, 1972, at 8.30 a.m., six days before the launch. At this point, the Saturn V's rocket's three stages were powered up and drinking water was pumped into the spacecraft. As the countdown began, the crew of Apollo 16 was participating in final training exercises in anticipation of a launch on April 16th. The astronauts underwent their final pre-flight physical examination on April 11th. On April 15th, liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen propellants were pumped into the spacecraft while the astronauts rested in anticipation of their launch the next day. Sunday, April 16th, 1972, Launch Day. At 7.39, Director of Flight Crew Training, Deke Slayton, alerted the crew, John Young, astronaut Ken Mattingly, and Charles Duke, then proceeded for a medical examination, which is scheduled to begin momentarily. The physician for that brief examination will be Dr. George W. Hoffler. They then ex expected to proceed to breakfast, where on schedule for them this morning is grapefruit juice, filet mignon, egg omelet, buttered English muffins, fruit jam, coffee. They're scheduled to depart for the pad at 9.48 a.m. this morning. We've just been alerted that the cryogenic loading aboard the Saturn V space vehicle has been completed. Weather continues to look good. We have some scattered clouds in the area this morning as a result of some ground fog. This is expected to dissipate somewhat by launch time of 12.54. Now at 3 hours, 59 minutes and counting, this is Kennedy Launch Control. Unfortunately, everything was not going entirely smoothly. A problem was discovered with the spare gyro. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control. We're continuing in our hold at the three minus three hour thirty minute mark. This hold was scheduled to be completed at nine twenty-four this morning, and we were scheduled to resume the count. There is a possibility that we may have to extend the hold. During a flight control systems check this morning, some Data indicated a momentary dropout of output from a spare rate gyro. The primary system has passed all tests successfully. The data is being evaluated at this time. It may be a problem which is due simply to ground support equipment, but the spare gyro is an airborne system. It would be used only in the event of the primary system failing. The spare gyro is located 
in the instrument unit of the Saturn V space vehicle. We're continuing to evaluate this problem. At this time, we're continuing in the hold at T-minus 3 hours, 30 minutes. During this time, the crew went down to the medical office that had been set up for their last pre-flight physical and took a short 30-minute checkup. It was a very brief exam just to make sure everything was go. The doctors had been a little concerned about Charlie Duke because three months earlier he was admitted to the hospital with a severe case of double pneumonia and was hospitalized for a week. The pneumonia was physically draining, but fortunately Duke was in good shape and had made a complete recovery. To everyone's relief, especially Duke, they all passed the physical with flying colors. Then it was off to breakfast. Deke Slayton updated everyone with a brief press conference. Okay, I guess I'm supposed to make a statement here about what we've been doing so far today. Uh, we got the crew up at 7.39, which is on schedule. Uh, started breakfast at 8.24, which is on schedule, of course, and uh, started suiting 8.54. Uh, just put the helmets and gloves on and, and uh, be relaxing for about the next 10 minutes and... Uh, should be departing the suit room in about that time, be down here in approximately uh, 12 minutes and ready to go. It's a beautiful day out here and everybody's happy this morning and ready to fly. I guess the normal question of what we had for breakfast, uh, I always say <clears throat> steak and eggs, except this morning it's a little bit different because it's a TV type steak and egg dinner and I think very good. Uh, the crew had to suffer through that one, but then that's one of the penalties for flying the mission. The rest of us had bacon and eggs. Suiting up was an interesting experience. The suit room was a special environmentally controlled clean room with filtered air. The crew were good friends with all the suit techs. They had gone through training with them and were like mother hens with their spacesuits, treating them like their babies. Everyone was jovial and relaxed. First on were the medical sensors so the ground could keep track of their heartbeat and respiration during flight. Then they began suiting up. First, a diaper, in case they had to defecate at an inopportune time. Then, long underwear and a urine collection device. Then they donned their spacesuits and the technicians zipped them up. Gloves were checked out, and the last thing, the helmets were locked on. The crew would now breathe pure oxygen for three hours before liftoff. Due to the fact that the spacecraft had a cabin pressure of 5.5 pounds per square inch instead of the normal 14.7 pounds, breathing pure oxygen would remove the nitrogen from their bodies so they wouldn't suffer from the bends due to the reduced pressure. Then it was off to the launch pad. As they exited the operations building, they were met by a couple hundred well-wishers, screaming and shouting and jumping up and down. It was like a pep rally, complete with signs and American flags. Saturn launch control, we're now at T-minus 3 hours, 8 minutes, 59 seconds and counting. 
The prime crew for Apollo 16 is now leaving the manned spacecraft operations building. They'll be accompanied in their van by Charles Buckley from NASA Security and Deke Slayton, the director of flight crew training. They're now entering the van. They're carrying their portable uh, oxygen ventilators. This supplies the crew oxygen as they're sealed into their suits. They'll use this oxygen ventilator continually until they get into the spacecraft, at which time they'll go on to the spacecraft oxygen system. They're now in the van and departing for the pad, this pad some seven miles away, and it's expected that it will take them approximately 15 minutes to reach the pad area. When they arrived at the pad, everyone got a close-up look of the magnificent 360 feet, 33 feet in diameter, 6.5 million pounds of space vehicle. Not only impressive was its sheer beauty and size, but also its feeling of power. Liquid hydrogen and oxygen were boiling off from the rocket's three stages to relieve the pressure in the fully fueled tanks. It looked alive. According to Charlie Duke, ice was beginning to form on the vehicle because of the chill-down effect of the liquid propellants. It was an awesome sight with the sun's rays glistening on the frost and emblazoned in large black letters on its shining white surface was proudly written, USA. Anticipation was intense, and Charlie was eager to get strapped in and on his way. The crew took the elevator up to the spacecraft level of the launch tower, 400 feet above the ground, and waited for their turn to enter the capsule. A group of technicians were there to strap them in. Gunter Vint, who was the head of this group of men, was a favorite of the crew, and he had been with them through all their testing. If there was ever any tension, Gunter always knew how to break the ice. He had noticed that John Young had short arms and had a difficult time reaching some of the switches when strapped to the couch in the cockpit. Therefore, Gunter presented John with a little arm extension he had created specially for the occasion. It was in the shape of a little hand on the end of a stick, so that John could grab a hold of things from a distance. Gunter told John if he had any trouble, this is what I want you to use. Even though... They weren't permitted to take it with them. They all had a big laugh, and it eased the tension. Young climbed in first in the left couch position, then Duke on the right, and last, Mattingly, in the center. It turned out that the backup crew prepared some surprises as well. As Duke climbed into the spacecraft, he noticed a little sign on his seat that said, quote, Typhoid Mary's Seat, end quote. A little gotcha from the backup crew to remind him of Apollo 13 and the measles. The couches the astronauts sat in were like little wheelchairs without wheels. They had a head support, a backrest, a seat, and a leg and foot support. The seats were tilted backwards so that the crew's backs would be parallel to the floor. This reclined attitude provided increased 
G tolerance on ascent. In this position, the G-forces push them back into the seat instead of draining the blood from their brains. This is Apollo Saturn launch control. We're at T-minus 2 hours, 56 seconds and counting. I log the hatch going closed at the T-minus 2 hour and 7 minute mark. At this time now, the closeout crew will operate independently from the astronaut team inside the spacecraft. Inside the spacecraft, the astronaut team will be conducting abort advisory checks and an emergency detection system check. While outside the spacecraft, the closeout crew will continue with their work. This will include setting up the purge, which they are doing at this time, to run a purge and then do a cabin leak check. They purge the spacecraft system now with a mixture of, of oxygen and nitrogen. This is a 60-40 mixture, very similar to the air we breathe. They'll pressurize to slightly above the outside air pressure or ambient pressure, and then check for pressure decay. This is how they make the leak checks. After the leak check has taken place, the boost protective cover hatch will be closed, and the men will go about configuring or setting up the white room so that it will be prepared to uh, handle the swing back when swing arm nine moves back. The closeout crew is scheduled to be out of the pad area at the T-minus 55 minute mark in the countdown. Now at T-minus one hour, 59 minutes, 34 seconds and counting, this is Kennedy Launch Control. After the technicians finished their closeout procedures, they left the pad while the crew got busy performing various checks as directed by launch control. This is Apollo Saturn launch control. We're at T-minus one hour, 30 minutes, 58 seconds and counting. Just seconds from now, a final gymsphere release will be made. The gymsphere is a weather balloon which measures the winds aloft. However, we don't anticipate any problems with any type of weather this morning. Spacecraft checkout is continuing ahead of schedule, according to the test conductor, Skip Chauvin. The cabin purge has been completed, and the spacecraft pressurized with a 60-40 mixture of oxygen and nitrogen. This mixture, similar to air, is uh, pressurized slightly above the ambient pressure, and then the crew checks for any possible decay in that pressure. This ensures that we've had a proper seal with the hatch, which came closed earlier, and that we have no spacecraft leaks. These activities continuing at this time, T-minus one hour, 30 minutes, nine seconds and counting. This is Kennedy Launch Control. T-minus 90 seconds, and all Charlie Duke could think about was, let's go. There was no fear, no reluctance, no second thoughts. He was consumed with the thought of wanting to hear the words, lift off. He felt this was his one and only chance. Charlie quickly reviewed the emergency egress procedures in his mind. After the Apollo 1 fire, he had helped develop those procedures. He questioned himself. Did he do a good job? If the main rocket engine tanks sprang a leak, or if a problem started in the electrical system that resulted in a fire, or if a multitude of other problems occurred, then the crew had to make an emergency egress out of the spacecraft and leave the launch pad. Two escape routes were developed. One way was to get out of the spacecraft as fast as possible and to run across the swing arm to the elevator. The elevator, being a high-speed freefall, would take the crew quickly to the bottom of the pad, 
Then they would rush through an automatic sprinkler to wet down their spacesuits, jump into a slide tube, and go down the tube to the blast room. This room was about a hundred feet beneath the pad and was mounted on springs. In this room, the whole vehicle could explode right on top of the pad and the crew would not be harmed. It was like being inside a bank vault. There was enough food there to last 30 days because it might take that long to be dug out. The other escape route was easier and faster. It involved a slide wire that went from the top of the launch tower to a point on the ground about a quarter of a mile away. After leaving the spacecraft and running across the swing arm to the launch tower, each astronaut would jump into a little basket that was attached to the slide wire, then slide down the wire in the basket. At the bottom, some netting supposedly would stop the basket and they would jump out and dive into a special bunker or foxhole. And finally, if a problem occurred late in the countdown, the crew had the capability of the spacecraft itself being jettisoned off the Saturn with a device called the Launch Escape Tower. If such a catastrophic failure happened, Young would twist an abort handle that ignited the Launch Escape Tower rocket engines and separate the spacecraft from the Saturn. The Escape Tower engines would carry them a safe distance away from the exploding vehicle parachutes would automatically open and they would descend for splashdown in the Atlantic just off the beach. The launch escape tower was designed to be used on the pad and also during the first three minutes of flight. But for now, everything was looking okay as the countdown progressed. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control. We're at T-minus one hour, 59 seconds and counting, going into the final hour of the countdown. The spacecraft stabilization and control system has been powered up. Checks have been run on that by the spacecraft commander, John Young, and the command module pilot, John Mattingly. We've also just received word that King Hussein has landed at the airstrip on Cape Kennedy and will be over to the Kennedy Space Center shortly to view the launch. Our countdown is continuing here at Kennedy Space Center. We'll switch now to the Mission Control Center in Houston for a status there. This is Apollo Control Houston at uh, minus uh, one hour and counting. Uh, the worldwide uh, manned spaceflight network is prepared for launch at this time. The network is clean without discrepancy. A calm but intent atmosphere best describes the mood of the Mission Control Center at this time. Our cast of characters today, uh, Flight Director Gene Kranz, the most veteran of the active flight directors, uh, wearing his traditional white vest, uh, this is his team, uh, the uh, white team of flight controllers. Our Capcom, uh, Gordon Fullerton, uh, served in the same capacity on Apollo 14 when the uh, Alan Shepard crew was also launched on a Sunday. At all of the consoles uh, here in, uh, in Mission Control Houston, an experienced team of flight controllers uh, ready to swing in action in less than an hour. Uh, this is Apollo Control Houston. Go at T-minus 60 minutes and counting. Only three miles from the launch pad were the astronauts' families, with the exception of Ken Mattingly's wife, who remained in Houston because she was pregnant and close to the delivery date. According to Duke, all his relatives had come for the liftoff. 
Plus, it seemed at least half of South Carolina had made the trip to watch one of their own. Duke's hometown newspaper had been carrying articles all month, and the town was really excited and proud. They had even chartered multiple buses to come and watch the launch. But now Charlie began worrying about his son, seven-year-old Charles. His son was having a hard time with the upcoming flight and had told his mom a few days ago that he wasn't going to look at the rocket when it started. He didn't want to see the fire coming out of the big engines when they ignited. Charles Jr. had seen the Apollo 15 launch last summer when his father had taken them all down for a dry run, hoping to prepare them for this day. But maybe that's when Charles began to get so scared. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control, T-minus 54 minutes and counting. T-minus 54 minutes and counting. Earlier this morning, the cryogenics were loaded aboard the Saturn V space vehicle. The flight crew then came aboard and is now on board, completing a series of communications checks. The weather continues to be clear as it's supposed to be for our launch time, and we continue to aim for launch at 12.54 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The command communication system, which carries the launch vehicle commands on S-band frequency, has now been turned on for launch. The liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, the cryogenic fuels loaded earlier are continuing to be topped off. Countdown continuing at this time. We just received word that the Vice President of the United States, Spiro Agnew, has arrived at Cape Kennedy and is coming across to Kennedy Space Center to view the launch. Now, T-minus 53 minutes and counting. This is Kennedy Launch Control. Although the RP-1 kerosene fuel for the S-1C stage was loaded some time before, the oxygen and hydrogen propellants had to be loaded shortly before launch, since they would boil off despite the insulation on the tanks. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control. We're at T-minus 34 minutes, 56 seconds, and counting. At this time, the support controller, Joe Barfus, has indicated that the industrial water system is ready to support the launch. At the T-minus one-minute mark, the flame deflector underneath the five Saturn V first-stage engines will start being covered with water at coming out at 13,000 gallons per minute. At the T-zero mark, the swing arms will be quenched with water 7,500 gallons per minute. As the vehicle lifts off at the plus two second mark, 50,000 gallons per minute of water will flush the mobile launcher decks and another 30,000 gallons will be quenching the flame deflectors. In the spacecraft, the astronaut team is making a series of switch checks. Spacecraft commander has made checks uh, following the retraction of swing arm 12 to arm the various pyrotechnics. This includes the launch escape system aboard the vehicle. The range safety command checks have now been completed. T-minus 33 minutes, 54 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy Launch Control. At T-minus 30 minutes and counting, Duke's heart began to beat faster and faster. He knew that ignition was to start at 8 seconds before liftoff. The sequence was to ignite all five of the huge F-1 engines while keeping the spaceship strapped tight to the pad. This would allow the launch control computer to check out each engine and make sure all were at full power and nominal performance before committing to liftoff. If all that checked out, the computer command would release the strong clamps or hold-down arms 
that kept this 360-foot beast on the ground. Charlie took a quick glance at John and Ken. John had made three previous flights and seemed cool as a cucumber. He was the perennial Mr. Coolstone. They had trained together for three years, and Charlie had really developed a great relationship with him. Charlie could tell what John was thinking and knew how he worked. Charlie was so familiar with him, with his personality and his response to situations that he knew almost innately what to expect. Ken was the command module pilot and during liftoff was responsible for the computer and making sure it was cycling through its programs. Ken and Charlie had known each other since 1965 and were good friends. Ken wasn't saying much now, but was as keyed up as Charlie and was intently watching the instrument panel in front of him. After months of training together, this crew had been molded into an efficient team that believed they could handle any emergency in the spacecraft short of a catastrophic explosion. At various stages in the flight, a mistake made by you or another crew member could be fatal, so they had developed an explicit, childlike faith that each of them was going to do exactly what he was supposed to do at the right time. This trust also applied to the mission control team. This is Apollo Saturn launch control. We're at T minus 24 minutes, 58 seconds and counting. The problem which we spoke of earlier, the problem with a backup yaw gyro has been resolved and we have been given a go for launch. All possible modes of failure were evaluated should this be a problem with flight hardware and it was determined after evaluating each of these that they would have no impact on the mission. This is Apollo Saturn launch control, T-minus 19 minutes and counting. T-minus 19 minutes and counting. We just received word from recovery forces that all recovery forces are on station and ready to support the launch of Apollo 16. Also, the manned spaceflight network has indicated they are ready to, to support. An earlier problem with a power dropout in a switching station in Monrovia, West Virginia, has been taken care of by going to a backup station. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control. We're at T-minus 14 minutes, 59 seconds, and counting. Scheduled at this time are some Mission Control Center updates to the computer clock aboard the command module. This is actually synchronizing the spacecraft timing system with that in the Mission Control Center. Also, the command module pilot, Ken Mattingly, has been giving readouts on the service module quadrants. These are giving temperatures, pressures, and fuel quantities. A short time ago, the S-2 start tank chill-down began. This is chilling this, that system to prepare it to accept the extremely cold liquid hydrogen. The second, or S-2, stage of the Apollo 16 Saturn V vehicle was powered by the combustion of liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen in a cluster of five J-2 rocket motors, which would generate a thrust of 1.15 million pounds. A million liters of liquid hydrogen cooled to minus 250 degrees C to get the, it into the liquid state is loaded into the large upper tank of the stage while 331,000 liters of liquid oxygen is loaded into the smaller squat tank below. With both propellants being so cold, the tanks must be prepared and chilled down before they can be filled. Saturn launch control, T-minus 10 minutes and counting, and we just heard from the spacecraft commander, John Young, that Casper and Orion are go for launch. 
The spacecraft is now on full internal power. Up to this point, it's been sharing its power load with the ground supply. A short time ago, the Astrocom circuit was checked out. This is the circuit that the astronauts will be on during the launch phase. They'll be on this with Stoney, the astronaut communicator here in the Launch Control Center, the Launch Operations Manager, Paul Donnelly, and the Spacecraft Test Supervisor, Skip Chauvin. The crew actually goes on to the Astrocom circuit at the T-minus four-minute mark in the countdown. The crew, in accordance with tradition, named their two spacecraft with a fine blend of humor and feeling. The command module was named Casper by Ken Mattingly, after the cartoon character Casper the Friendly Ghost, while the lunar module was named Orion after the constellation. NASA required that the names had to sound very different so that they could not be confused even in the event of radio interference. This is Apollo Saturn Launch Control. We're now passing the six-minute mark in the countdown. Emergency detection system has now been placed in the launch mode. Houston Flight has also indicated that they are go for the automatic sequencer. At the T-minus 3 minutes 7 second mark, the launch will go on the automatic sequencer, and from that point on, the launch will be automatically handled by the sequencer. Coming up on the T-minus 5 minute and 30 second mark, at that time we'll be standing by for a go to launch from Mission Director Chet Lee. Mission Director verifies go for launch. Mission Director Chet Lee from Houston verifies go for launch. All elements now reporting into Test Supervisor Gordon Turner that they are go for launch. Now T-minus 5 minutes, 13 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy Launch Control. Charlie Duke studied the instruments in front of him on the right side of the spacecraft, the systems for which he was responsible. Communication, electrical, and environmental, all were nominal. His anticipation mounted as the countdown moved into the final minutes. Control, we're approaching the four-minute mark. T-minus four minutes, 32 seconds, and counting in swing arm number nine is now swinging back to the full retract position. The astronaut crew aboard are making their final switch checks, reading off these final positions, preparation for launch. As we approach the final minutes here, We'll go into a relatively silent period as far as reporting goes. The launch team indicates that they will have only negative reporting. If there's a problem only, will they come up on the air at this time? Launch operations manager Paul Donnelly just called the three astronauts and said that the Apollo 16 launch team wishes them good luck and Godspeed. They all replied thank you, and we'll now have a quiet circuit as they switch over to the Astrocom circuit. We're now T-minus 3 minutes, 24 seconds, and counting. We're approaching the time when the countdown goes on the terminal sequencer. The sequencer commands a variety of functions, all of which must occur in the proper sequence for the count to continue. Also here in the control center, the uh, people will continue to monitor what are called the red line values to ensure that everything is go for launch. The instrument unit light, panel light now on the status board indicates instrument unit ready, spacecraft ready, emergency detection system ready. We've passed the uh, two minute, 50 second mark and we're now on the terminal sequencer. Terminal sequencer has started. This terminal sequencer will pressurize the fuel tanks. <laughs> These fuel tanks are pressurized to ensure that as the fuels deplete, they are forced down for, to assure an even flow into the engines. Fuel tanks are now being pressurized. The S4B, or third stage liquid oxygen tank, has just been pressurized, and the second stage liquid oxygen tank 
has been pressurized. As we move down through the count at the T-minus 17 second mark, we'll get a release of the guidance system in the instrument unit. Also handled by the automatic sequencer will be the release of swing arms number one and number two. The ignition of the Saturn V five engines, the first stage five engines, will take place at 8.9 seconds in the countdown, 8.9 seconds. They'll be, the engines will, or the vehicle will then be held down <coughs> until we build up to 7.7 .7 million pounds of thrust. At the T-minus three-minute mark, tape recorders on board the spacecraft were turned on. These recorders record both voice and data. Spacecraft now to full internal cooling. The cooling load has been shared with a ground cooling. T-minus 90 seconds and counting. T-minus 90 seconds and counting. At T-minus one minute, 15 seconds, the spacecraft batteries will be turned on for launch. These batteries will give an additional power source to the spacecraft as well as be acting as a backup for the fuel cells. The third stage liquid hydrogen tanks now uh, pressurized. All third stage tanks pressurized. Second stage tanks also pressurized. All 16, this is the RLM. The launch team wishes you good luck and Godspeed. Well, we appreciate that. No, we can't do without you. T minus one minute. T minus one minute and counting. Now moving into the final minute of the count. We'll be standing by to for the switch over to internal power. Switch over taking place at this time going on internal power. T minus 45 seconds and counting. Guidance aligned just announced by John Young. That will be the last action taken by the crew aboard the spacecraft. T minus 35 and counting. Countdown continuing to go well, T minus 30. T minus 25, 24, 23, 22, 21, 20, 19, 18, 17, guidance release, 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9. We have ignition sequence start. The engine's now building up to 7.7 million pounds of thrust. We have a launch commit and we have a liftoff. The swing arms moving back. The Saturn V lifting off the power. Alpha pad building up thrust. We clear the tower. Houston is now controlling. Oh, we have good thrust in all five. Roger. Engine roll program started. Uh, Salutations and Happy New Year from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I would like to say thank you for listening to episode number 355 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 16, The Launch. Hope you enjoyed this first episode of 2021. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released on January 21st. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 181 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. 
It should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, a couple of quick afterthoughts on this episode. Well, folks, we have been extremely busy here at the podcast. It is usually a busy time when we change years, but this year we have had a lot of off-topic work to do that just couldn't be put off. In fact, this year will probably be very busy for us in general. I'm not quite ready to talk about what we're doing yet, but we will eventually let you know. It's just off-topic stuff, so it's not relevant to the podcast, really. Just those that are interested in our ongoing life (laughs) will let you know. Now, due to all this extra work we've been doing, the donors page has not been posted yet for 2021, but we're working on it very hard, and we will get it up just as soon as possible. Now, the moment everyone has been waiting for, the 2021 Longevity Emoji. This is for those donors that have contributed for eight consecutive years. The new emoji is a Nova, or reasonable facsimile thereof. Of course, everyone knows a Nova is a star showing a sudden, large increase in brightness and then slowly returning to its original state over a few months. So, we selected a Nova. I sincerely hope you like that. We will continue with the launch of Apollo 16 on the next episode. I just love these moon launches. The countdown is so much fun to do. It's the anticipation building up. It's exciting. And Charlie Duke, in his book, wrote the most about the launch. So, I covered a lot of it from his perspective. In my never-ending search for audio clips, I found a few from NBC News, but they didn't really seem to add that much to the content, so I just left them out. We'll probably use some of those later on. Okay, let's move on. First, I want to announce the donors for 2020 and give you the yearly tally. I would like to thank Graham M. from Australia, who sent in another donation and moved to the shuttle level. James M. from Illinois sent in another donation and moved to the shuttle level. Larry L. from St. Charles, Illinois, donated at the Apollo level. Christoph M. from Massachusetts donated at the Apollo level and earned an alien emoji. Mark Lewis from North Carolina donated at the Apollo level and earned an alien emoji. Chris H. donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Delphine E. from France donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Jim E. from Ohio donated at the Gemini level and earned a satellite emoji. Martin K. from Germany donated at the Soyuz level and earned a shooting star emoji. Mike L. from the UK donated at the Soyuz level and earned a moon emoji. Andreas S. from the UK donated at the Soyuz level and earned a rocket emoji. Tobias L. from Germany donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. Robert C. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Eric W. donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Matthew G. from Kentucky donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Dancy S. donated at the Mercury level. Craig H. from Australia sent in another donation and moved to the Mercury level. Michael G. from the U.K. donated at the Vostok level and earned a galaxy emoji. 
Michael W. donated at the Vostok level and earned a moon emoji. Martin C. donated at the Vostok level. Aaron N. donated at the Vostok level. Jeff L. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level. Jeff K. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Callie pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. So our total Patreon donors had reached 246 for the year 2020. Now that was missing our goal by 54. Our goal was 300. Our total donors for 2020 reached 443, which missed our goal by 57. To put things in perspective, that was about four donors less than 2018 and 44 less than last year. But there was a pandemic. I mean, really, what can you expect? I mean, I think it's very good that we got that much accomplished, and we certainly do appreciate it. Now, let's continue with the new donors for 2021. The first donor for this year was our old friend Marco M. from California, who donated at the Artemis level and earned a Nova emoji. Mark Lewis, now from the Old North State, donated at the Apollo level and earned a Nova emoji. Mark W. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level and earned a Moon emoji. Mark U. from South Dakota donated at the Orion level and earned a shooting star emoji. Mike L. from France donated at the Soyuz level and earned a moon emoji. Robert M. from San Antonio, Texas donated at the Mercury level and earned a galaxy emoji. John W. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Simon B. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Bastian B. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our total Patreon donors are at 249, and I want to thank you very kind listeners who have chosen to continue to support the podcast through Patreon this year. I think our goal this year will be to reach 300, since we haven't been able to do that yet. Our total donors for 2021 so far have reached 254, and we will go for that 500 total donors goal again this year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Happy New Year, SRH friends. Now for the first drawing for 2021. The winner will get the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet or two stickers or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the SRH archive magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Joseph Garza. Joseph Garza, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 443 of you who contributed in 2020, and the 254 who have jump-started our donations for 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Moonwalker by Charlie Duke, Forever Young by John Young, Apollo 16 Flight Journal, Apollo 16 Mission Report, The Internet Archive, NBC News, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 356 posted by January 21st. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.